Stillbirth. One of the worst things you can say to a woman who has just lost a pregnancy is, it was meant to be. From a scientific view, this might not even be true. You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing pregnancy loss. In this segment, we will be focusing on the evaluation and management of patients with stillbirth. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Robert Silver. Dr. Silver is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Utah Medical Center. He is also director of the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine and has recently received an NIH grant to study stillbirths. Welcome to the show, Dr. Silver. It's a pleasure to be here. The workup of a patient with a stillbirth can be divided into three rough categories, usually recommended, recommended if suspicious, and not recommended. And I might add, if that sounds a bit uh, familiar to you, Dr. Silver, uh, I borrowed that from one of your articles. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about tests that are usually recommended in the workup of stillbirth? You bet. Perhaps the, the most important test uh, in evaluating stillbirth is, is a perinatal autopsy. These are sometimes difficult to do because there aren't necessarily trained pathologists in, in every center. However, I would strongly uh, advise consideration of transport of the stillborn fetus to a referral center where a pathologist is available. Autopsy can provide information that's helpful to the diagnosis of virtually every cause of stillbirth, be it genetic, uh, infection, thrombophilias, uh, etc. So I think it's probably the single most valuable thing that you can do. The second most valuable test, in my opinion, is a placental histologic evaluation. This is uh, also very important to uh, have this done by a trained pathologist with, with expertise. And again, I think it's worth considering sending the placenta out to a tertiary care center if there's not an interested pathologist in your hospital. And again, placental histologic evaluation can provide clues to a variety of different causes of stillbirth. Can you tell us a little bit about placental uh, pathology? Because I know most clinicians, uh, both obstetrical and pediatric, are very uh, skeptical about uh, placental pathology in terms of really aiding anything. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of our pathologies, uh, our normal placenta show chorioamnionitis or funicitis. So tell us a little bit just uh, briefly about placental pathology and the diagnosis of stillbirth. Firstly, I can't stress enough how important it is to have someone with expertise evaluating the placenta. Many surgical pathologists simply aren't interested in placental pathology or, or don't have adequate time available, and, and so we'll make a very cursory diagnosis. Second, many abnormalities are common in placentas taken from live births, and so it's, it's very important to recognize that and have pathologists who only report findings uh, that are, are clearly abnormal and don't occur in, in live births. But I think you, you can certainly uh, document abnormalities with regard to infection, and it, it's relatively unusual, especially to have funicitis in normal pregnancies, although it can occur. So I think it's, it's fairly good for diagnosing intraamniotic infection. It's also very good for diagnosing infarction in thrombosis. And again, even though those things can occur in normal pregnancies, if they occur in a large proportion of the placenta, I think that can be valuable. You can also see extramedullary hematopoiesis on occasion, which can be valuable in cases of chronic anemia. And you can also often find abnormalities when there are genetic abnormalities. 
If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Robert Silver, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Utah Medical Center and chief of the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine. What about other tests that are usually recommended? We talked about a perinatal autopsy. We talked about placental pathology. Uh, any other tests that are usually recommended? I think another test that should be obtained if possible is a karyotype. As uh, you know, an abnormal karyotype will be present in approximately 6 to 12% of stillbirths, but it may be a higher proportion. And the odds of there being an abnormal karyotype are increased by a variety of factors. For example, if there are malformations uh, noted, if the fetus is small for gestational age, or if the mother is of advanced maternal age, then there is an increased risk of an abnormal karyotype. It's often difficult to obtain karyotype because it's hard to get cells to grow in, in culture, especially if there's been a long interval between the time of, of fetal death and delivery of the tissues. Um, ideally, blood should be obtained, but it's also good to get placental tissue or chlorinic plate tissue. Those tissues can stay alive well, because the placenta is perfused often uh, after the baby has died. Also, uh, tissues that survive under low oxygen tension, such as fasciolata, skin from the nape of the neck or skin from the genitals can be helpful in obtaining a karyotype on a stillborn fetus. What about torch titers or measures of infection? Uh, are those usually recommended? You know, a serologic test for syphilis is, is recommended. And even though syphilis is relatively uncommon in the United States today, uh, outside of a, a few uh, pockets where it's uh, prevalent uh, in different communities, often in, in relation to prostitution, it's still unequivocally a cause of stillbirth and it's relatively easy to, to screen for. However, uh, torch titers uh, are not uh, currently recommended. Even though if you open a textbook, it will often say to obtain torch titers, most of the effect infections associated with that are simply not very common in the United States and not very common causes of stillbirth. What about tests that you should do for specific suspicions? That's another category of testing. Tell us a little bit about some of these tests. You bet. I'd just like to mention a couple of other tests that are, are recommended in, in most cases of stillbirth. Uh, I would recommend screening for maternal hemorrhage. The most common uh, test that uses the Clay Howard Betke um, because that's a very common uh, cause of stillbirth and in some series it is reported to be a cause in uh, 10 to 15 percent of cases. It's also worth uh, assessing an antibody screen. Uh, again, that's something that's routinely done in most hospitals. And it's also worth considering your intoxicology screen and probably parvovirus uh, serology. Parvovirus uh, uh, of the, the uh, a variety of infections that have been associated with stillbirth probably uh, is, is the single most causative agent with regard to viruses. What about uh, parvovirus serology in the mother uh, as opposed to the fetus? In the mother, you bet. Okay. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Robert Silver, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Utah Medical Center and chief of the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine. Today we have been talking about the evaluation and management of stillbirth. Um, any other tests that are usually recommended before we go on to the do of suspicious category? No. Um, there are a variety of tests that, that uh, can be helpful in, in select circumstances. And uh, probably the, mo the most common are uh, testing for heritable thrombophilias and also for the anaphospholipid syndrome. And I think it's, it's worth considering these tests if there is evidence of placental insufficiency. Uh, for example, if the fetus is undergrown, 
or if there is placental evidence of infarction or thrombosis out of proportion to what would be seen in a normal circumstance. Uh, now, I know that management depends on etiology, but can you give our audience a brief overview of some of the conditions in which there is uh, at least some evidence that treatment can reduce risk? Well, I think the, the ones that, that come to mind most readily are things like diabetes and hypertension, where improved medical management has dramatically reduced the risk of, of stillbirth associated with these conditions. I think also uh, patients with antiphospholipid syndrome have markedly improved outcomes with the use of thromboprophylaxis uh, and, and low-dose aspirin. It's still controversial, but there's some evidence that patients with heritable thrombophilia, such as the factor V Leiden mutation or prothrombin gene mutation, may do better with thromboprophylaxis as well. And there's certainly uh, evidence that management of other medical conditions, such as uh, SLE, may improve outcome. After that, it, it's become less clear that we can really improve the outcome in subsequent pregnancies with patients uh, uh, who have uh, stillbirth. However, there are certain genetic conditions where prenatal diagnosis is possible. And for some of those conditions, if you were to do in vitro fertilization and prenatal implantation diagnosis, you could avoid having a recurrent stillbirth due to a, a heritable genetic condition. What about the emotional care of the bereaved mother? Can you give uh, our obstetricians and pediatricians uh, perhaps family practitioners and psychotherapists in the audience, a uh, little bit of uh, a guideline as to uh, the do's and don'ts of the approach to the bereaved mother? You bet. I can't uh, stress how important bereavement is, and it's something that, that a lot of docs, uh, myself included, are not as good at as we, we could be. And if it's something that you're not comfortable with, I would strongly encourage you to bring in other uh, providers and uh, bereavement specialist to uh, facilitate uh, doing this. First, I think it's very, very important to encourage parents and families to hold their child and to obtain mementos, for example, footprints, casts, pictures, and, and the like. Uh, even though that's very difficult for many families, uh, I think that, that uh, really does facilitate uh, closure and, and ultimate healing. Second, I think it's very important to encourage a complete evaluation for causes of stillbirth. And uh, even though parents often will feel like it doesn't make a difference and are often uncomfortable with things like autopsy, almost invariably they want to have answers as to why the stillbirth occurred. And I think that also helps to facilitate emotional closure. It's also very, very important to be respectful uh, of families' wishes and customs and beliefs and to facilitate uh, the grieving process in any way that you can. It's also very helpful to offer professional um, counseling uh, and, in some cases, short courses of antidepressants. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your research and ongoing research in general into uh, both the causes and prevention and perhaps epidemiology of uh, stillbirth? You bet. We're currently uh, part of something called the Stillbirth Collaborative Research Network which is a multi-center trial sponsored by the National Institute of Child Health and Development that's taking place in, in five centers, including the University of Texas at Galveston, the University of Texas at San Antonio, uh, Emory, Brown, and the University of Utah. And this is a population-based study of stillbirth. So we're studying five different geographic areas, and in that geographic area, tracking all of the stillbirths and all of the live births. Part of the study is to assess different epidemiologic uh, risk factors that are associated with stillbirth compared to the live births. And then second, all of the stillbirths and live births are being subjected to a systematic uh, protocol 
evaluating for possible causes of stillbirth. First, we hope to be able to more clearly delineate which tests are useful to clinicians when uh, evaluating possible cases of stillbirth. Second, we hope to identify previously unrecognized causes of stillbirth, for example, genetic abnormalities that are not assessed by traditional carry type or different kinds of infections that are not identified by current routine screening. I want to thank Dr. Robert Silver, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Utah Medical Center, who's been our guest. We have been discussing the evaluation and management of stillbirth. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Be safe. Be informed. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.